So the first week we talked all about uh, what's the, the storyline of the Bible. And if you've ever wondered that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that online. But what, what's the storyline of the Bible? What's the beginning all the way to the end? What is God doing? What's the, the gospel story? And then the next week we talked about what is the message of the gospel. Gospel means good news. And so what is the news? What, what does it mean? What's it all about? Then last week, we talked about how does the gospel, how does what Jesus did change us? And that was kind of the appetizer for the six-week class that we will do. And we also had Slim Jims last week, so that was important. So we did both of those things. Um, and tonight, we're going to talk about not, how, not just the grand story and not the specific message and not how it changes us, but how does the gospel begin to then move outside of us? So how does what Jesus did affect our relationships? How does what Jesus did affect the the people that we're in relationship with? Uh, We all have relationships, whether those are people with you here today or people that are not with you. That can be spouses and uh, it can be coworkers and it can be bosses and parents. And we all have all sorts of different relationships. And so how does the gospel affect that? How does the gospel, how does what Jesus did affect the relationships that we have around us? It's a really important question. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And, and to begin with that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at, if you've got a Bible, uh, you can open it to Genesis 3. And you can just keep it open to there. We're not going to put those words on this screen. We'll put um, other words up here. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take the one that's in front of you. Or if it's not directly in front of you, it's in front of somebody else. And you can take it from them. Um, if they don't have one, you probably shouldn't just rip it out of their hands. But um, so we're going to, to talk about how the gospel affects our relationships. I want to first talk about this. I want to talk about how sin messes up our relationships. There's a lot of ways that sin does that, but there's some ways in particular, four different ways that we'll talk about tonight, but then how the gospel changes those ways. So if you have, if you have any relationships, then you know that sin messes them up in various ways. And so what are the effects, what are the effects that sin has on a community, on relationships? What does it do to relationships? And that's what we're going to look at. So let me give you... Um, Let me tell you what happened in Genesis that led up to chapter 3, which is what we'll look at tonight, and you can just kind of keep that portion open. Um, But here's what happened. God created the world. It was good. It was perfect. There was enjoyable relationship, perfect relationship between us and God, between humans themselves with one another, between man and woman, and between um, the world. Um, people didn't litter and pollute and they didn't mess up the earth and there wasn't thorns and thistles and weeds and all that bad stuff and mosquitoes and none of that. Instead, everything was perfect. Everything was beautiful. It was creation the way God intended it to be. And that's the first two chapters of the book. And then the third chapter in Genesis, everything goes wrong. And here's what happened. What happened is God said, you can eat of any tree in this garden any tree in the garden except for this one. And this one over here, do not eat, for when you do, you will die. And that means physical death, and it means spiritual death. It means actual physical death, now we go back into the dust, and it means spiritual death where we become separated from God, where there's hostility now that breaks all those things that were once perfect. God says, don't eat of that tree, and then what happens is, they're kind of hanging out by the tree, which I don't know why they were doing that, but they're hanging out by the tree. And the serpent says, the devil says, hey, come eat this fruit. And they say, we want to be like God, which is the desire in all of our hearts that is sinful to be like God, not in a positive way, but in a negative way where we want to be God. And that's the temptation that they buy into and they eat the fruit. And then here's what happens. Here's, so we're going to look at four different effects of sin and how the gospel changes those things. And that's the story leading up to it. Here's the first effect of sin that we see. In verse, in chapter three, verse seven, right after they eat the fruit, here's what it says. Then the eyes of both, that's Adam and Eve, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So here's the first effect of sin. Here's, so when God made Adam and Eve, God, um, he makes Adam and then he makes Eve and he brings Eve to Adam and Adam sings its poetry in the Hebrew. And he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, woman. And he starts dancing and singing and it's beautiful. The first love song. And ever since then, there's been boy bands that trying to imitate him, right? And so what happens is the summary statement of all of that when they get married is it says they were naked and unashamed. That's what it says. So it's kind of painting this beautiful picture saying they're naked and unashamed. Now what happens, the very first effect, the very first effect of sin, a little too close to the edge there, the very first effect of sin is that they cover themselves and now they have shame. It's the opposite. It's the reverse. So it's supposed to be naked and unashamed. And what happens immediately is they cover themselves and they're afraid. Shame. That's the first effect of sin that we see is covering and shame. And here's the thing. They hide from God, but before they hid from God, their first impulse was they hid from one another. I mean, it says they covered themselves with the fig leaves. That was before God came walking in the garden and they ran and hid from him. So they hide from one another. The very first impulse when sin comes in is, I want to hide who I really am. I want to hide who I am. This was not a modesty thing. This wasn't all of a sudden, oh, I need to be modest. This was, I'm hiding who I really am. All of a sudden, sin comes in and there's this impulse to hide who we are. This impulse to cover ourselves up. This is the first thing that happens. It goes from naked and unashamed to covering and afraid. So why do we do that? Because that's exactly what we do today. One of the effects of sin in our relationships today is the exact same thing. Why do we cover up? Why do we hide ourselves? Because we feel less than. We feel we don't want people to really see who we are because if they did, What would they think? We don't want people to see us for who we really are because what will they do? What if if in their eyes we become unwanted? What if we become seen as insignificant? If people really saw me for who I am, then what? I mean, think, think about that. Sometimes I talk with people and they say things like, I just don't think people really know me. They don't know me. And some of you maybe feel like that way, that people know you, but they don't know the real you. Why? Well, it's because we cover, we hide. We hide who we really are. One of the first impulses of what sin does is create, I want to hide myself. I don't want people to see me for who I really am because I'm afraid of what they'll think, right? That's what Adam said. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what people will think of me. I'm afraid of what will happen if they really see me for who I am. And we don't use fig leaves, right? We don't, I mean, Adam grabbed whatever they had in the moment. Seems a little uncomfortable, but they grabbed whatever he had in the moment. We do different things. Whatever we use to make us look good, to control how people see us, to control the information they know about us. So think about, this is one of the very first effects. Sin creates this impulse in our hearts that we don't want to be seen for who we really are. We don't want people to see us because what would they think about us if they really knew? And I want to give you just a kind of an illustration of that. This is not the only thing that can be said about this, but this is just, uh, I think it illustrates well that point. And maybe some of you have seen this video on Facebook, Um, but I'm going to play this video here. Um, Just take a look at this. Thank you. 
So I think that illustrates well, and not to pick on social media, because I think that it just applies to many places in our life where that's the case. We don't want people to really see who we are. What if people saw what was really going on? But here's what the gospel does. The gospel takes it from being having to cover and from there being shame to us being able to know others and to be known by others. And here's, here's what the Bible says. Paul says this in Romans, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, what we were just looking at, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So it says sin and death came through one man, Adam, but the free gift of salvation in Jesus also comes from one man to everybody that receives that. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. That word's important. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, what Jesus did on the cross, led to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So here's what happens. Here's how the gospel changes things. We no longer have to hide. We don't have to hide our stories. We don't have to hide our pasts. We don't have to hide our hurts. We don't have to hide our struggles. We don't have to hide our pains. We don't have to hide our fears. We don't have to hide that our life sucks like Scott or whatever his name said. We don't have to hide that. We don't have to hide that anymore because why do we hide? Why do we hide? We hide because we want to be seen as strong. We don't want to be seen as weak. We don't want to be seen as failures. We don't want to be seen as losers. We don't want to be seen as lower than other people, less than other people, so we control everything. We try to project the very best. We try to project our strengths. We hide because of that. But what Paul said is this, in the gospel, because of what Jesus did, we are justified and made righteous, which means this, on the cross, Jesus says, because of what I've done for you on the cross, because I've taken away all your sin, you now are justified, which means you are made right. You are made perfect in God's eyes. You are made righteous in God's eyes. That when God looks at you, he sees you the same way he sees Jesus. When God looks at you, if you're a Christian, when God looks at you, he sees you and says, you are justified. You're right. That's what we're fighting for. We want people to see us as good, to see us as okay, to see us as right. So we project our strength. We project that everything's okay, but we know it's not true. And Jesus says, in me, you have worth, you have value. So let me explain like this. If you're walking down the road and someone, um, just a random stranger says, hey, you're dumb and ugly and worthless, just a random stranger, and then they just keep walking, you'll probably go, that's rude, and then go about your day. You're not going to probably go, oh my goodness, I need counseling right? But if for many years your parents told you you're dumb, you're worthless, or your spouse told you you're dumb, you're ugly, what, why would that have a different effect? Because there's someone close to you, there's someone whose opinion you value, there's someone you love. So how about infinitely more than that? God says you have worth you have value, you're loved, you're justified, you're righteous. 
See, if we live with that declaration, then what is possible is we can let other people know us. Because we don't have to be worried about what they will think of us because we already because they now, in comparison, become the random stranger. I'm not saying other people's opinions don't matter at all, but I'm saying in comparison, they become the random stranger to God that is over and over again telling you, you have worth, you have value, you're righteous, you're justified in my sight. Think about the days, um, and I think this applies to everyone Think about the days that uh, you look in the mirror and you just feel like, today's a good day. I look good today. And you go out confident and you go out just feeling like, yeah, I mean, I look good. I got my best clothes on. Maybe it's a wedding. You got your suit on, guys. It's fitted. It's tight. You just look like good. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Gals, you know, wedding dress, beautiful, wonderful. I mean, your best day. Think about that. And you feel confident. You feel like people should treat you well. You feel like they should look at you. You feel like they should say, nice shoes. You feel like they should say something because you look good. That's how God sees you spiritually because of what Jesus has done. Spiritually, you're wearing a tight-fitted suit and a beautiful wedding dress because of Jesus. Now, if you believed that, if you really believed that, then it would be okay if other people knew you. You wouldn't have to cover yourself and hide yourself because Jesus already covered you. He put his clothes on you, the Bible says elsewhere, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. See, one of the effects of sin is that we feel like we have to hide ourselves from who we really are. We have to protect ourselves and we're afraid of what people will think of us. But the gospel says you can know other people, you can ask them questions and get to know them, and you can be known because you're already fully clothed in Christ. You're justified and righteous in Christ, which means this. It means that we can be honest with our suffering. It means we can be honest with our sin. It means we can be honest with our failures. It means we can be honest with our hurt. I mean, all the things that you try to hide from people, it means you can, you can let people know you. You can let people know you. And you might say, okay, well, that's nice that God thinks about that, but other people don't think about me like that. Okay, but that just shows, man, those other people's opinions are big to you and God's is small. And I'm not trying to shame you with that. I'm not trying to say, how dumb could you be? I'm just trying to say there's so much more freedom that what God says of you matters more. And I know that's hard to get. I know that's hard to believe. I know that's hard to press into when other, I mean, if other people are telling you those horrible things or you feel that in your own soul, but what God says is infinitely more important and it's available to you to press into. Okay, second, sin does this. It creates blame. A couple verses down, uh, God says, who told you you were naked back in Genesis 3? 11, Genesis 3, 11. So he asks Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Did you, did you do the one thing I told you not to do? He's caught, right? With his hand in the cookie jar. Did you disobey me? What's Adam going to say? What would you say? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to? The man said... Very first words out of his mouth. Very first words. The woman. Man. I mean, I I wonder, you know, we can't go back in time and and I don't know, but what would have happened if he said, God, I'm sorry? What if those were the first words out of his mouth? But the first words out of his mouth were not, yes, I did. I mean, he he eventually says he did, but it takes him a little while. He says, the woman, first words, blame. First, then Eve, then God says to Eve, um, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, first words out of her mouth, the serpent. I mean, both of them, it's hot potato with sin. It's not me. So secondly, one of the main effects of sin, of what it does to relationships, is it creates blame. It creates trying to always put the fault somewhere else. Whether it's an individual, 
the woman, the devil, or groups of people, the Republicans, the Democrats, the liberals, the conservatives. It's always taking it and putting it somewhere else. That is one of the main effects that sin does. And then, oh, the other one already showed up. And then the next, here's how the gospel changes that. The gospel changes that through, by confession. Instead of blaming when, we, when, we're, when sin is brought to us, instead of having to say, it wasn't me, it was them. It wasn't me, it was that group of people. So, so, so Look, sometimes we're actually honest. We say, I did it, but... It was because my parents raised me like this. It was because the culture I'm in. It was because the, the, the man. It's because the, the laws are unjust. It's because we just try to get the blame away from us. But the gospel frees us to confess. And here's how. In 1 John, it says this. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's Jesus, we have fellowship with one another. See, it has an effect on relationships. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, the woman, the serpent, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, here's what the gospel does. We blame because we're trying, we're fighting so hard to be seen as okay, to be seen as right, to be seen as good, whether in our eyes or others' eyes. We fight so hard. I'm okay. I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'm righteous. I'm holy. I'm, I'm, I mean, if somebody brings an accusation to you and says, hey, there's this thing in your life, and you basically, if we just boil it down, they're saying, you're a sinner, and we're saying, no, I'm not. I mean, we, we blame and put it somewhere else. We fight so hard to keep it off of ourselves. We fight so hard, basically to deny that we are sinners, to be seen as worthy, as pure, as right, as just. I mean, what's your instinctive response? What's your instinctive response if somebody comes to you and says, you're doing this, or if you're in the middle of an argument or in the middle of a, a fight, and they say, you're doing this, you're doing that. What's your instinctive response? If your boss corrects you, if you're, I mean, what's your, is your instinctive response to say, yes, you're right? Or is it to go, no? Now, maybe later you think about it and go, man, I actually were right. I was doing that. But what's your instinctive response? It's to push back. It's to say, no, there could be no sin in me. No. I mean, it's just almost, we don't even have to think about it. It's like someone saying, if you were wearing a blue shirt and I said, you're wearing a blue shirt. No, I'm not. I mean, just wait, I didn't even think about it. Yes, I am. Sorry. I mean, it's just instinctive to say that we're okay, that we're good, that we're just, that we're pure, that we're right. It's just an instinctive response because we do not want to say that we are sinful. We do not want to say that we are not okay. We try so hard to hide that, to hide our weakness, to hide our sin. But the gospel says this, the gospel says Look, you, you, can, you can think you're not bad, but you are so bad that God had to die for you. You're so bad that it said earlier, it took the blood of Jesus to cleanse you. While, while we are, this is what it's like. It's like you're a murderer in a courtroom. And so you're convicted of murder, about to face the death penalty. And the judge is reading you the verdict. Guilty, you are a murderer. And, and you, the, you stand up and go, but sir, I did not interrupt the man when I stabbed him. I did not interrupt him. I am a listener. I am not an interrupter. And viciously arguing your case that you are not an interrupter. So what? You're a murderer. I mean, in all our defense, in all, in all our pushing away that we didn't do something, the cross stands behind us saying, Guilty. In all of our defense, the cross has already outed us. It's already said, the verdict is there. Death. The verdict is God had to die. The verdict is we're so bad, it took the blood of Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. It's that God died. And thus, it says, forgives us and cleanses us. 
See, we, we fight so hard because we know intuitively, even if you're not a Christian, I believe you know this intuitively, just like Adam did. We know that the verdict is death. So we fight so hard to say, no, I'm not a sinner. No, I'm not. No, I didn't do that. No, I, that's not what I meant. No, that's not what I said. No, that's not how I said it. No, we fight so hard to push it away because we intuitively know if we were to own that, the verdict is death. Adam knew that. Adam, God had told him, you will die. And so when God comes to him, he says, the woman, the woman. And Eve says, uh, the serpent. We know intuitively the verdict is death, but here's the thing we forget. Jesus already paid that verdict. See, the gospel says the verdict is death. We're worse than we think we are, but Jesus paid for it. Jesus fully paid for it. And it says that that means we're totally forgiven and totally cleaned. What would happen if you believed that? It would lead you to confess. It would lead you not to have to hide your sin because here's the thing. You know that one of the first stages in uh, grief or if you get some sort of sickness, one of the first stages is denial. So let's say you were to go into the doctor and the doctor were to say you have cancer. One of the first things that you would experience is, no, it can't be true. I want another test. It can't be, I mean, one of the first stages is denial. But what if you went into the doctor and the doctor said, look, here's the deal. You have cancer, but we've got this medicine that is 100% guaranteed it will take care of it. And you, and you didn't question it. You didn't doubt it. You knew it was 100%. Then would your instinctive response be denial? No, you would just go, okay, sweet. Let's get rid of it. Let's take care of it. Awesome. Thank you. You'd be able to treat it. You, would, you wouldn't be afraid of it. You would just know this can be dealt with. It's not a big deal. The gospel says we can confess our sin. The gospel says that because it's already been paid for and it's already been dealt with, that now we have the ability to say, yep, I got a problem. Yep, I've got an issue. Yep, there's something wrong with me. And if somebody else comes to us and says, hey, you've got an issue, you've got a problem, we can go, hey, thanks. Just like the doctor that would say, hey, you got cancer. Because it's already been taken care of. It's already been paid for. We've already been forgiven. So if somebody points out a problem in our life, we go, thank you, instead of, no, no, no. If God would have come to Adam and Adam believed that God would forgive him, and again, I don't know what would have happened in that case, but if he would have believed that, he wouldn't have said the woman, he would have said, God, forgive me, and thank you for forgiving me. I did it. See, there's freedom to be able to own what's in our hearts, There doesn't have to be a blame-shifting game. We don't have to pay that debt. We don't have to worry about the price because Jesus already paid for it. Which means in our relationships that we would see ourselves first as a sinner and second as somebody sinned against. We wouldn't focus all of our time looking at the intricacies of how somebody else has sinned against us. Look at what they did. Look at what they did. We would go, I'm a sinner. And I know that. I know that what I've done deserves the death of God. (laughs) If you believe that, do you think that would have power in your life? if you believe that all the sin in your life, God's actually already dealt with on the cross, wouldn't that free you to not have to blame people anymore? Wouldn't it free you to not have to be defensive against others? I mean, if you believe this, there's power to be free. There's power to let other people in. There's power to not have to be so offended by everything that people would say to you. Hey, you, sometimes people are so sensitive and offended by what people say because they don't believe that they're worse than what that person said. <laughs> I mean, anything anyone's ever said to you, you're actually worse than that. <laughs> I mean, you killed God. I mean, anything anyone ever says to me, if I really believe that, man, it doesn't matter. 
You could tell me I'm ugly, stupid, dumb, the worst pastor in the world, and I could say, well, I'm actually worse than that. I killed God. But he forgave me, which means everything you accuse me of, God forgives me of that too, even if it's true. It's freeing. I mean, if you believe that, you don't, man, there's so much freedom in that. I was talking to somebody about that that um, was in a conversation where they were approached and said, hey, you did this, and their instinctive response was to say, no, I didn't do that. And then for a moment, they remembered the gospel and, got, and said, no, actually, thanks for pointing that out. It's freeing. It's freeing to believe I'm worse than I think I am, but Jesus paid for it all, so it doesn't, doesn't own me anymore. I'm cleansed. I'm forgiven. Man, that's, that's what actually leads to change and growth and humility and us not having to hide our sin and be secretive. Okay, third thing, conflict. Here's what you see is the next in the passage. A little bit down in verse uh, 15. This is what God says to them because sin enters in. He, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking about the snake. So there's going to be conflict between the snake and the woman, between the devil and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So there's going to be conflict between woman and children from the very beginning. And then he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, which both of those are negative things. It's to say, you're going to have this desire for your husband, not in a positive way, but in this way to kind of domineer over him. But instead, he's going to domineer over you. It's going to be bad. So it's going to create conflict. One of the first things that sin does is it creates conflict between people. That what it was supposed to be was unity and oneness and naked and unashamed and perfect relationship. And immediately sin comes and there's conflict. There's fighting. There's tension. Because here's what happens. Instead of each of, instead of Adam and Eve, and think about your life and my life, instead of us all saying God is king and we obey him and thus live our lives in unity with him as the, the one that we live our lives around, it's, I want to be like God and I want my will to be done. And this person over here is saying, I want to be God and I want my will to be done. And now there's two different wills instead of one will that both people conform to. There's two separate wills. And sometimes they interweave, but often there's tension and there's conflict and there's expectations that are not met and there's demands that are not met and there's needs that are not met because I want my will done and I want my will done and those collide instead of we want God's will done and so we work together in unity towards that. So there's conflict. This is one of the first things that sin does. But the gospel creates love and grace. Here's how. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here's what I want you to see. Our interactions with others are always based on our interaction with God first. It says, be imitators of God as beloved children. So this is what he says. You've been loved by God. You are a loved child of God. So, walk in love. This is who you are. You're loved. You've, here's what you've experienced. Here's what you've received from God. Love. And if you believe that and you receive that, then you live out of that walking in love. That's very important. Whatever we experience from God, we're then able to give to others. Whatever our experience with God is, inwardly, we want to share outwardly. If we believe I'm loved by God, then we love others. It's not saying God loved you, so therefore go love him. It's mainly saying you are loved by God. And so out of that, you are now free to be able to love. There's this power that if you actually experience that. This is what the gospel does. See, here's the thing. We have a 
a deep, deep, deep well of grace from which to draw and from which to give. If you believe and if you've experienced from God grace, then you're able to give grace. See, do you believe that God has been patient with you? He has immensely. Do you believe that he's forgiven you? Immeasurably. Do you believe that he's pursued you? Passionately. Do you believe that he's loved you? Deeply. Sacrificially. If you experience those things, then you're able to give those things to others. If you experience Whatever you experience from God is how you then operate with those around you. If you think that God, if you don't see yourself as a loved child of God, if you don't see that he gave himself for you, if you don't see that he sacrificed for you, then you're not going to do those things to others because you've got no power to do that. And there will always be conflict. See, conflict comes when we want something from someone else. This is what I want done, and I want you to get that for me. But if you believe you've been given everything, and, and you, your well is so full that you are just then free to give. God's given us everything, and it's overflowing, and so no one can take anything from us. Then we're free to give. Um, there was something in the news recently, and this happens from time to time, Starbucks that uh, the person in line pays for the person behind them, and the person in line pays for the person behind them, and I think it went on for like seven hours or something. Um, people do that because they experience a gift, and then they give a gift. They experience a gift, and then they give a gift. And everyone feels good about their day. But if we believe we've been given way more than a $3 Americano, then we will give way more than a $3 Americano. If we believe we've been given so much grace, it's just filling our heart, then that's what we give. If we believe we've been given so much empathy and so much understanding and so much patience and so much love, then that's what flows out of our heart. So do you believe that? Do you feel that? Do you experience that? That's what God wants for you. I think this uh, quote by Bonhoeffer, who's a German pastor in the time of World War II, I love this quote. He says this, when God had mercy on us, when God revealed Jesus Christ to us as our brother, when God won our hearts, notice all these things that God has done, when God won our hearts by God's own love, our instruction in Christian love began at the same time. When God was merciful to us, we learned to be merciful with one another. When we received forgiveness instead of judgment, we too were made ready to forgive each other. What God did to us, we then owed to others. The more we received, the more we were able to give. And the more meager our love for one another, the less we were living by God's mercy and love. Thus God taught us to encounter one another as God has encountered us in Christ. Welcome one another, therefore just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Quotes from Romans there. If you believe that you are full of grace and mercy, then it's freely given to those around you. If you don't, go back to the gospel and say, what do I not believe? Don't just try to be more loving and more patient and more merciful. Go back and go, do I not believe I'm a loved child of God? Do I not believe I've been forgiven instead of judgment? And press into that. Next is this. Division. This is the last one. And um, in chapter 4, what happens is this. Chapter 3 is them sinning and God pronouncing a curse. Then immediately in chapter 4, Adam and Eve's two sons, Cain and Abel, Cain kills his brother Abel creates division. See, the effects of sin, then, and then you keep reading through Genesis and you see more and more of this kind of stuff. But what happens is 
When God made man and woman, he said they were one flesh. And that's true of a marriage relationship, but it's also just true of what community, unity, is supposed to be. It's people that are united, one. But sin comes in and creates division, where you have brothers fighting. You have man and woman, husband and wife, fighting. That instead of unity, now there's division. There's jealousy, there's envy. We look at people as those that are opposed to us instead of in line with us. We treat others as objects that are uh, to be moved out of the way instead of people that we are to be in relationship with. It creates division. This is one of the effects of sin. How does the gospel change this? It moves us from division to family. And here's what it says in 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So here's what the Bible teaches over and over and over again. That God is our Father, and we are His children. God is our Father, and we are His children. Now, if we believe that, that is the opposite of division. That creates family. That our identity was child of wrath. This is what the, this is Bible's, the Bible's terms. Child of wrath. Child of disobedience. That was our identity. And now it's child of God. That we were orphans. And the Bible says that God adopts us into a family. So instead of there being hostility and division, what it says is because of what God has done, we're family. Because of what God has done, we're family. And if, if you think about it, um, in, a, in a normally kind of healthy functioning family, this isn't true of all families, but a normal healthy functioning family, the, closer con- the, the, the greater the concentration of blood, the closer the relationship. So brothers and sisters, closest. Then you're close with your cousins, but not as close with your brothers and sisters. Then second cousins, you know, you, you like them but they're not like super tight and super close. Um, Parents, obviously really close. Grandparents, really close. Uh, Aunts and uncles, close. But I mean, the greater the concentration of blood, the greater the bond in 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 a normal functioning family. That's not always the case, I know. But now think about with Jesus. What, it's, what the Bible says is that we're children of God because of Jesus's blood shed for us on the cross. So the, the blood of God is what makes us family, if you're a Christian. That's, that's some highly concentrated blood. That the blood of God makes us family. And, and think about this. People with shared experiences are always close. So whether it's people that have gone through tragedies, there's support groups that are created for that because there's a shared experience, or people that, um, sometimes parents with children that have um, different disabilities, they come around and have shared experience. The reason the gospel creates family is because we've been saved. We have the same blood running through our veins, the blood of God. And because we have the same shared experience where we look at someone else and go, God saved them too. They've got the same father I have. The spirit is dwelling inside of them too. Jesus died for them too. They were, they were a sinner and Jesus paid for them too. There's a shared experience. See, instead of creating division, instead of creating people that are against one another, it creates family. Which means this, we give people family access to our lives. That we say, man, how would I treat this person if they were my brother? How would I treat that person if they were my sister? My blood sister. Like if we were raised in the same home, how would I treat that person if they were my mother? If they were my father? How would I treat them? Man, it's, it creates family access. It creates, it creates the ability to, to like people that maybe normally you wouldn't like. To be friends with people that maybe you normally wouldn't be friends with. Because it's not based on superficial affinities. It's based on, you've got the same father I've got. Man, Jesus died for you too? That's so cool. And it creates family. This is, this is why when this begins to take place, People experience community. People experience community that is beautiful. 
that, that oftentimes the church relationships become relationships stronger than family relationships because there's a shared experience around the blood of Jesus, around what he's done for us. Now here's the thing in closing. Many people want this. Everybody wants this. Everybody wants this. Everybody wants community where you can really be known, where you can really be open and honest and confess and don't have to blame, where there's vulnerability and there's authenticity. Everybody wants that. Everybody wants relationships where there's not conflict and tension and where it feels like family. Everybody wants that. But here's the problem. If you have a commitment and if what you want is community, then most of the time you don't get it. If you have this high value and high commitment and high desire for community, most of the time you actually don't get it. Because it's not a commitment to community, but a commitment to the gospel that creates all those things. See, if we just have this high, I want that, man, vulnerability and authenticity and family relationships, I want that. What often happens is we get really disappointed because here's what's going to happen. It's going to fail. And then people are going to say, I thought Christians were supposed to have community. I listened to the sermon. It was supposed to be wonderful. It was supposed to be, well, kind of. But what I'm saying is that the gospel is what gives us the power to do that. And the gospel gives us the resources so that when community fails, what happens? There's forgiveness and there's grace and there's confession and there's not blame shifting and there's all the things we just talked about. See, it's a commitment to the gospel that creates those things. Not a commitment to healthy relationships or a commitment to community. People try that all the time. Let's create community. Let's go after community. Let's have good community. But it keeps crumbling and keeps failing because there's no power to do it. It takes power to be able to do this. It takes, I mean, because you might be thinking, that sounds too good to be true. It is. It's not natural. You're right. It's supernatural. It takes the power of God to create that. Which means this. When that actually happens, when this actually happens, and when it fails, but it doesn't ruin. When it fails, but it's okay because the gospel is powerful enough to hold together failure. People look at that and go, I've never seen something like that before. What is that? That's what the gospel does. And so my encouragement to you, for all of us as a church, is this. Let's get the gospel into our community deeper and deeper and deeper. Because it's a commitment, a passionate pursuit a studying, a believing, a receiving of the gospel that does this. So we should think about as many ways as possible to have the gospel saturate our community. Because when that happens, it creates something that is so different that could only be explained by Jesus. And then people go, what kind of power is that? And if you're not a Christian, great to have you. And here's the thing, you've probably experienced all of these types of things in different elements. You've seen the division and you've seen the blaming and you've seen that. And sometimes you maybe even saw that in Christian circles and then thought, well, pff, Christians are just like, yes, they are. But the point is that the gospel has the power to hold people together even when that happens. And when we take communion, we remember and here, here's what's amazing about communion. We're all, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, don't, don't take communion. This is something that Christians do or become a Christian tonight. But for those of us that are Christians, we take communion and, and we all take it from the same cup and the same bread, which shows we have a unity around what Jesus did. His body broken for us and his blood shed for us. That because he did this, we all come together. Because he did this, it creates a unity in us. And this is why for us as a church, church is not an event. Whether that's a Sunday or a midweek community group, that, it's a family. And that's what we want for you. That's what I want for you deeply, is not to just show up on a Sunday and sit in a pew, not to just show up even 
uh, in somebody's home during the week and then leave, but to really have a family around the gospel. That's what we want for you. That's what I want for you. That's what Jesus died to give to you. And so as you come up and take communion, I want you to remember and thank God Jesus died so I could have a family. Jesus died so I could have relationship that are free because of the cross, because of his resurrection bringing us life. And at the same time, we'll receive offering, which if you're not a Christian, please don't give. But if you are, it's a way that we worship God to say we want more and more people to experience family. And then we'll also sing songs. And we'll sing songs to our good Father and our good Savior that has made this possible. Let me pray. God, thank you. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that we are your beloved children. God, if anyone does not know you as their father, I pray that they would come to know you. If anyone does not know you as father, Lord, draw their heart to you. And for those of us that do know you as father, God, help us to really believe that and live out the implications of what you've done on the cross in the resurrection for us. In your name, Jesus, amen.